0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk to subscribe today. Hello, and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this edition, Professor Jeremy Black talks to The Critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, about how the role of prime minister has evolved from the tenure of William Ewart Gladstone to Boris Johnson. Professor Black, uh, last week on Black's History Week, we were talking about the first 150 years of the development of the role of Prime Minister. How would you describe the nature of the mid to late Victorian Prime Ministership at the time when Disraeli and Gladstone were battling for the role?
1: Well, let me just start off, if I may, by trying to do what I did last time, which is to draw some uh, big picture uh, themes, which I hope will be of interest to listeners, maybe help to anchor what we're discussing because it's so easy, as you know, for us to become very, very specific and add and offer. We're both, you know, professional historians and offer some very specific uh, insights. I want to try and sort of bring out some bigger implications. I mean, you'll remember that last time I suggested that um, there was a contrast between the prime minister or whatever you mean by prime minister uh, and the head as head of government and the same individual as head of a political party. And argued that, that was a dy- both of those were dynamic roles. They weren't fixed. And that therefore it was very, very difficult to have um, these who was the greatest of ever comparing somebody in the 18th century with somebody in the 20th. And I also drew attention last time to the issue of corruption uh, as one way we can judge uh, prime ministers, either actual corruption or an appearance of corruption. The latter appears to be more the case in recent decades. Um, And I did suggest that that was important because it was an element in which we look at the actual office as as a symbolic one, as well as a practical one, a symbolic one in the sense of setting standards in public life. And I also drew attention to the extent to which foreign powers Um, intervened in the domestic nature of British politics and that this offered another way to consider um, the role of Prime Ministers, the extent to which they were uh, consciously or unconsciously, deliberately or not, uh, agents of influence for other powers. Um, So if Jeremy Corbyn had won the uh, last general election, I think that that would have been one way one might have been able to look at a Corbyn Prime Ministership, and again, the same thing potentially with Michael Foote. Um, Now, what I'd like to do is I, I think all of those pieces and comments can bear reiteration. And if we look at the one in which the Prime Minister is head of a party, I think that you can see, as I suggested last time with Peel and gladstone and their role in splitting their political parties that possibly the worst thing a um, a prime minister could do as head of the governing power party was to split it and i think you could see that as well in the 20th century i can think of if you look at both herbert asquith and david lloyd george between them they helped to sink the liberal party which had been a very powerful political party um, had obviously conclusively won the 1906 general election and for both the 1910 uh, elections it hadn't done so well but he'd been able to form uh, the government with minority support from Labour and Irish nationalists and the combination of these two men's inability to agree on how to run the Liberal Party uh, and in particular how to contain their own sort of sense of ego um helped to doom the liberals now there were other factors the consolidation of non-socialists around uh, the conservatives um the uh, the financial strain to the liberals of a number of uh, general elections in quick succession the the effect of first past the post uh, results but all of these factors were also linked to those of the party leader more contentiously possibly um, we could argue, if you wanted to, I mean this in fact I'm, I think might well be of interest to historians or commentators some decades later, you could argue that in effect the Conservative Party split um, over the issue of um, Europe, Brexit, whatever terms you wish to use in the 20-teens, and that that created extraordinary problems for it. And you could argue, if you wanted, that um, that was in particular a major flaw of the Prime Minister and party leader between 2010 and uh, 2016, that he mishandled it such. Uh, that he, apart from anything else, increased support for UKIP, and part of which was a leeching of Conservative support. Just as, as you probably know, the 1997 general election was not due to an enormous increase of support for Tony Blair. It was rather to do with the fracturing of the Conservative Party in 1997 into three groups, those who voted Conservative again, those who vote, voted for mr goldsmith's uh, referendum party and a large group who just simply didn't vote so that the, uh, the number of voters in 97 was considerably less than the number of voters in 92 so all i'm trying to say is that one of the factors we ought to look at um is that which we've already mentioned last time i'd also like to draw forth another one which in a sense Uh, is a continuation of what we talked about last time, but also a a development from it. And that is the relationship between the prime minister and the monarch. And the extent to which the prime minister, consciously or unconsciously, and I think it was pretty consciously by the time you came to Tony Blair, was trying to adopt what you might see as the role of a president with all the implications that that had. Now, I think very um, sort of crudely, Um, that in the 18th century, the the prime minister was the king's prime minister. The king needed a prime minister to get business through the House of Commons. We were discussing this last week. Um, But but ultimately, the king could try and break with a prime minister or a ministry, as, for example, in December 1783 with the Fox North uh, Ministry, and put in a prime minister who did not have the parliamentary majority, in the case of William Pitt the Younger now. That crisis was, which was definitely created, was overcome uh, because um, Pitt then won the subsequent general election. Um, uh, rather like the Liberals winning the 1906 general election meant to them then coming into power in very different circumstances at the end of 1905, could actually be, uh, be uh, um, sustained. Now, what I would suggest, we've already discussed this, is as a result of the uh, illness of George III in his latter years, is a result of the indolence and lack of political acuity of uh, George Prince of Wales, subsequently George IV, and as a result of the playing through of political crises involving William IV and the young Queen Victoria, I would argue that by the 1860s, you have a somewhat different set of circumstances and i would take this a stage further in that in a sense and we're talking today we're being recorded today on the death on the day of the death of um, prince philip the duke of edinburgh uh, a very sad occasion um i think it's worth saying that what was also a sad occasion the death of prince albert was politically and governmentally far more significant because in the political circumstances of the uh, 1850s and early 1860s he had been able to much more try to be a driver of policy in terms of social policy but also for example in the case of the crisis in relations with the united states um, um over the trent affair in foreign policy as well now um thereafter i mean the long widowhood um being one of the factors though not the only factor um thereafter there was a different mood i think one would say in the assertiveness of monarchy you can discuss that in uh, contrasting ways you can refer to badgett um You can also talk about the extent to which Edward VII, leaving aside his not exactly being the hardest working of men, when he came to the throne, he wasn't in the first flush of youth, that George V had a very, very strong sense of duty and played a tremendously important role in the political crisis of 1931, showing, uh, you know, the formation of the national government, showing the very significant remaining role politically of the monarchy but he didn't try and do so in a regular fashion we don't know what would have happened with edward the a man of uh, singularly little good character um so i think it would have been troubling to the to a great extent if edward the had been the monarch um at the beginning of the war or more particularly in 1940 when things went tough but thereafter both george the sixth and her present majesty Very much sought to act and operate in ways that were, um, that paid heed uh, to all of the constitutional conventions. Now, what that meant was a growing role for the prime minister, not just a political role, um, and I think one can very clearly see this, but also a, as it were, a symbolic role. Um, And uh, I think that the political symbolism of power has much more focused on prime ministers from the late 19th century than was the case in the 18th century, and you may recall but well, we were talking last time and I started off discussing this question, which a lot of the commentators of recent weeks have so easily focused on. But by say when I use the term easily, uh, I mean they have got it wrong, which was uh, the notion of Sir Robert Walpole becoming prime minister and, as it were, starting a new office off in 1721. It would have surprised his brother-in-law. Uh, Charles Viscount Townsend, who was Secretary of State for the Northern Department and, in effect, uh, the foreign minister, it would have surprised him in 1728 or 29 to be told that he wasn't the king's chief minister. Um, And I think one has um, a grand, of course, Townsend accompanied George I to Hanover in 1725 and George II in 1729 um, you know, whereas Walpole didn't, um, and the so the 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 king was much more a central player in a complex relationship in the 18th century. By the late 19th century, and even more by the early 20th century, and of course, you get the formal post of prime minister being referred to in documents. You get uh, salary. Paid to the Prime Minister, uh, by the early 20th century, you have a different position. And I think, again, we need to consider that when we're assessing the office, and when we're assessing the responsibilities as well as the potential of the office. And that's one of the reasons why, I think, accusations of improper behavior against particularly influence peddling or what we might call in another another age corruption are more serious now than in the 18th century or the early 19th century it's partly that the conventions of government were different in the 18th century uh, payments to mps for example were more understandable when they weren't earning a salary um, but it's also partly because the Prime Minister is much more clearly the head of the political process, somebody whom it is harder to get rid of um, unless he or she loses the support of either the electorate at a general election or the bulk of their uh, parliamentary uh, colleagues. And because of that, there is a greater responsibility on them.
0: Mm. Well, I'd like to pursue a little further um, what you're saying about the relationship between the head of state and, and the head of government. um uh, Moving beyond the 18th century and really picking up in the last half, last quarter of the 19th century, in terms of um, raw politics, did it really matter that Queen Victoria got on better with Disraeli than she did with Gladstone, or looking forward to more recent times, that the Queen, our current Queen, Queen Elizabeth, Um, allegedly had a better rapport with Jim Callaghan than she did with Ted Heath?
1: I think a monarch falling out with a minister, in whichever circumstances, a first minister, was um, more serious in the 18th century, when there was a recognisable grouping in both the House of Commons and the House of Lords of what were known as King's Friends, or the equivalent under Queen Anne, when there were cabinet ministers, one can think of Lord Chancellor Thurlow till 1792 under Pitt the Younger, who were very much the king's men and more inclined to the king or look to the king than to Pitt the Younger. Um, and when there wasn't the kind of um, all cabinet ministers from the same grouping, which you have other than with national or coalition governments in the 20th century. Now, um, the confidence that Queen Victoria had or her present majesty had in particular ministers, they were at some pains, particularly her present majesty who behaved, uh, has behaved with much more political clout and nous than uh, her predecessor. Um, In the sense, Queen Victoria didn't play it very well. Enough people realised that she wasn't keen on Gladstone, and Gladstone remained (laughs) Prime Minister for long enough, um, to, as it were, expose the limited impact of the Queen's particular views. Um, On the other hand, you could argue, if you wished to, that the crisis you see over home rule for ireland the crisis which leads to the split of the liberal party the creation of the liberal unionists um and which harms the liberals very much in from the late 1880s to the mid 1900s you could argue that a number of factors went into that and one of them was a sense that gladstone was a had, whatever he'd been as a young man, had become a dangerous wrecker of the constitution, and that that was something that, as it were, overlapped with his poor relations with the monarch.
0: I see. I'm wondering whether you see an ideological dimension to, or politically ideological dimension to, the evolving role of prime minister. And by that, I mean the role evolves not just according to the personality of the office holder or wider political and technological um, uh, uh, changes but um conservatives liberals and subsequently labor prime ministers have a different ideological concept of what the role should involve
1: well that's again a very interesting question I mean first of all all political parties are coalitions so both Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman and Herbert Asquith were liberals but they, you know, one in succession to the other, but they weren't the same. Nor was Banner, Campbell Bannerman uh, the same as his predecessor as as um, party leader and a former prime minister, Archibald Earl, Earl of Rosebery. Ditto um, Edward Heath and um, and. Uh, um, Uh, Margaret Thatcher famously were not (laughs) identical in their views so I think one has to be cautious there and in part it's a question of personality and those are very significant and I think if I might uh, mention what to me is the uh, best uh, biography of a prime minister uh, of the 20th century prime minister to have come out in recent years and that is Charles Moore's uh, work on uh, Margaret Thatcher. I think that although there are others. I think the Andrew Roberts on Churchill is excellent, for example. Um, I, the, the, um, I think a lot also relates to circumstances. And, um, you know, in a sense, um, we go into World War I with a liberal government. We go into World War II with a conservative dominated national government. Um, had we gone into World War Three, depending upon when it had occurred, we would have gone in either with a Labour government or a Conservative government. And wartime carries with it responsibilities and requirements that are politically very problematic, because the Prime Minister has the difficulty of being a war leader. And what we know from both world wars is the... Um, I mean, this is one of the importance of Churchill, that although there were irritations with Churchill, and Alan Brooke made those quite clear, um, on the whole, there was also an enormous amount of respect, whereas that respect was very much lacking for Asquith. And then, as you probably know, in 1918, in the debates in the House of Commons over uh, this, you know, this, the Manning issue... Um, Lloyd George was accused, quite correctly, by a former general of lying. Um, And, you know, there is always a problem about looking at the management of the military as both fighting services, but also as power systems. And some people were better at that than others. One of the great skills of Margaret Thatcher, it was a much smaller conflict, of course, was her management of the Falklands War, both military and political. And, um, you know, you have to say that it's unclear, let's just be be polite, whether the Labour leader at the time would have been so good.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's perhaps a a good moment to segue into a a, a wider discussion of of all out war, total war, the two world wars in particular, and the fact that they had. It was one of Asquith's failings that um, he didn't uh, adapt his own energy and and the role he held to the enormity of the uh, problems that the Great War presented. Lloyd George comes in with this vim and vigour, but also there's the creation of of a cabinet secretariat as well. To what extent does that First World War transform the role of prime minister?
1: Well, it certainly changes the role of prime minister. And I think it's also very significant for creating the idea that you fight a major war with a coalition government. And that requires itself skills politically and qualities that aren't always there in peacetime leaders or desirable necessarily in peacetime leaders if they're going to be politically partisan. Um, you know, as you know, one of my fields is military history, and I don't want to get involved into counterfactuals and other issues about World War I. We could possibly hold a separate programme on that. But there is the argument, which requires teasing out, I've only got so much time, um, as to whether both Asquith and Lloyd George, despite their differences in personality lost control, well, in fact, never really had control, is I think a fairer phrase, of strategy during the war. And I think, again, the contrast with Churchill is a very interesting one. Churchill obviously made some mistakes. The Dodecanese campaign in the Aegean was a mistake, for example. Um, His flamboyant ideas of sending um, warships into the Baltic know didn't come through but would have been a mistake but nevertheless under Churchill you have a better ability to ask hard questions of the military than either Asquith or Lloyd George had shown and I would add because you know I've like to think we all ought to have a longer perspective i would say also than aberdeen had shown during the crimean war or indeed um than Pitt the younger had shown in the 1790s and early 1800s so i think these factors need to be thought about um and i think that well you know it's very easy to approach it in institutional terms you know we create this committee Um, That doesn't tell you anything about the quality of the decision making. It often only tells you about the structure or context within which it is made. And in one respect, a war cabinet is, you might argue, a natural response to A, issues of confidentiality and B, issues of political cohesion because you're running, in effect, a a coalition war.
0: The concept, though, of a prime minister is almost a, is almost like a kind of generalismo during this period. I mean, having assumed that level of control over the the levers of uh, you know a war economy, and also kind of interfering, as Alan Brooke would attest, you know, I- interfering in, in in ideas of military strategy, even if you know, sometimes backing down, but nevertheless having uh, very strong views. I mean. What's having assumed these powers, they're they're difficult to withdraw again. But would you say in calmer times, in peacetime, that the role of prime minister went back to something uh, totally unrelated to wartime? Or did wartime fundamentally shift uh, the role and and responsibilities?
1: Well, I think that's, again, an excellent question. Wartime is very important, but wartime isn't the only factor. I mean, in a sense, the nationalisation of much of the economy by the labour governments of 1945 to 51 which i think were probably because of that the worst governments of the 20th century i think that led to a permanent increase in the power of the state which it was then unable to administer effectively um so i think that um and i think if Attlee had won the 51 election you would have seen the crisis over the funding of the health service the crisis over relations with trade unions you know get worse. I mean, they were already there under Labour because it had put in place unsustainable expectations. Um, so it's not just war, but going back to war, if you look at the aftermath of World War One, the um, National government with Lloyd George as prime minister remains till 1922. So there's a big contrast between World War I and World War II, which again undercuts any attempt or should undercut any attempt to find a commonality between them in their political aftermath. And I think it's fair to say that, uh, although obviously um, Labour's done reasonably in the 1918 general election, the government is very much in control of the political process and on top of that it manages to see off a lot of the crises the crises for example of you know quite violent uh, trade union activism syndicalist activism in 1919 uh, it manages to appropriate by essentially appeasement the Irish separatist terrorists, so that problem is sloughed aside. And, of course, the hilarious aspect of that is that the new government of the Irish Free State then kills more IRA members than the British had ever done, because apparently that was acceptable. Um, Just as incidentally, I don't know if you know this, far more Sikhs were killed in the 1980s by um, the Indian government than were ever killed in Amritsar and the the related, uh, um, you know, uh, disturbances. But for some reason, to these critics of imperialism, uh, the 1980s is acceptable, even though there was, you know, extensive murders of civilians in Delhi and such like, whereas, of course, they find it so easy to beat up on, on you know, the British government. But, you know, Amritsar is a good example. The British government faced a whole host of problems in the the British Empire and outside the British Empire between 1919 and 1921 in Egypt, in Iraq, in India, the uh, mistaken intervention, well, mistaken, it didn't work out, um, in the Russian Civil War, uh, the deterioration in the British influence in Persia, Iran, so on. I think it's fair to say that they proved able to deal with these when, as you know, the final crisis comes. It's partly to do with foreign policy, the Chanak crisis, but that is also an expression of the extent to which the large amount of the Conservative Parliamentary Party and Conservative associations in the country, and indeed a lot of other people, were totally fed up with Lloyd George. I mean, going back to what we were talking about, corruption, the sale of honours, the rackety way in which he conducted himself. Um, And I think that's desperately underplayed in the biographies of him, which are far too favourable. And indeed, if I might say, um, we are now in a very difficult situation in the writing of historical biography, because if you write when people are alive, there is the danger that they will sue you. And if you write after they're dead, you are accused of sort of trashing the reputation of the dead. So, you know, it's quite clearly important if you're thinking about Harold Wilson, that Harold Wilson, again, was very rackety, hung out with corrupt individuals, some of whom attracted the attention of the police sufficiently for them to be arrested, uh, tried, convicted and imprisoned, um, and so on and so forth. But I think it's fair to say that the biographers of Wilson, both those writing at the time and those writing since, have failed to handle that. Now, you might say, so what? Well, the so what is that it does affect how people Think about them. Why, at the time, why they were not so strong. Um, It's not the only factor. I mean, if you think about it, a, a recent prime minister of unimpeachable integrity... Theresa May, um, wasn't as popular in her parliamentary party as some prime ministers who have been completely corrupt. Um, So it's not the only factor, but nevertheless, corruption, whether in the explicit sense or just running what people called a chumocracy, um, was something that really harmed uh, the political position uh, of a number of the prime ministers in the 20th century, going right back to the one at the very beginning. I mean, Salisbury... You know, didn't, Um, and you know, the government being called Hotel Cecil because so many relatives had been put into office. And you know, the famous phrase, Bob's my uncle, because Arthur Balfour, who got his start uh, and eventually succeeded Salisbury as leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister, of course, was the nephew. Um, And I think it's fair to say that these things are apt to be sort of pushed aside by many professional historians. I don't think that's appropriate. I think that contemporary disquiet gossip, and often if you want to find sources, they're not always easy, but you would be needing to look. And these people are really in a dangerous situation because they're open to blackmail, uh, not only by forces within their own country, but also by foreign powers. and I think that this is a, a matter of some, some note and should be a matter when one looks at things. Um, and indeed, if I might add just very quickly there, um, since we are talking on the date of the, uh, the death of the uh, Duke of Edinburgh, um, you do get sometimes people talking in favour of a presidency. And I have always said to them, well, you know, you need to think a president isn't necessarily going to be whom you want. But I think it is also the case that you might well have uh, individuals who are, shall we say, um, of sufficiently weak integrity, however popular, um, that, um, that there are all sorts of problems that stem from that. So I think one of the sad things is that although you can see prime ministers over the last century who would have made good presidents, you can also see prime ministers who were disastrously dishonest, corrupt and ran chum systems, and you have to ask yourself whether they would have been appropriate as, in effect, heads of state.
0: Well, there's an interesting contrast, isn't there, uh, between... Uh, Lloyd George with his uh, uh, evident corruption—I mean, this is a matter of record—and uh, uh, Stanley Baldwin, uh, Baldwin indeed, who cast himself as as almost the very opposite of Lloyd George, and also a very different character as well, much more relaxed, much more laid back. Certainly, the way he portrayed himself. Um, did Baldwin really take the premiership back to a, a much more? mid-Victorian idea of a Prime Minister's role, or are we reading too much into the way in which Baldwin liked to uh, portray himself as a a relaxed, thoughtful, uh, unenergetic, non-corrupt politician?
1: Well, that's again fascinating. I mean, to bear in mind, some aspects that we think of as Baldwin as modern in inverted commas, um, interest in advertising, interest in using new media such as the radio. It's worth bearing in mind that Palmerston, with his cultivation of the press, or Gladstone dashing around the country on uh, on uh, the train. I mean, you know, there, there are two Victorian figures who are only too happy to embrace new forms of... Uh, of, of, of organization and last time we were talking about the Primrose League, for example, as a form of uh, of mass activism. So I would not see so much Baldwin as a breach from uh, the um, uh, late 19th century progenitors. I certainly would agree with you entirely. and I would say the same thing of his brief predecessor who died unfortunately of throat cancer, Arthur Boner Law. These were people who were much greater integrity than, um, than uh, Lloyd George. I mean, it wouldn't have been difficult not to be, but uh, uh, they were figures of greater integrity. Um, and I think also they... Um, I mean, Baldwin was interested in this portrayal which very much fitted in with a kind of ruralism that you get um in the 20s and 30s, the interwar culture. I mean, hilariously enough, Neville Chamberlain complained, who who really did like going fishing, complained that he himself was more of a countryman than Baldwin. Um, But the fact of the matter is there was, um, you know, he was steady and the country needed steadiness. And I think, again, if you want to compare Britain, um, and again, at the present moment, as you know, there is this shallow febrile um, trashing of the nation's history. It is a key point that we survived the slump, the depression, the political extremism of the 1930s, um, defeat in the early stages of World War II we survived them with essentially most of our values uh, intact and without uh, turning to the extremism of left and or right. And the fact is, what's particularly important about that is there were extremists in the country. There was the Communist Party, there was the ILP, the Independent Labour Party, and there was the British Union of Fascists. Um, These were movements that all sought to be popular movements. Um, And the key thing is, uh, and indeed there were ILP and communist MPs, but the key thing is the overwhelming majority of the public um, stood by politicians who themselves were figures who showed themselves able to have a sense and to communicate a sense of a national steadiness and I think that was very 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 important and I think it helps to put us in the position that we had um in the late 30s and 40s and it was one of the three one of the things that took us through the war.
0: Mm.
1: Well uh, of course
0: Baldwin is followed by Neville Chamberlain and Uh, Neville Chamberlain is not the embodiment in his tone and and, um, sartorial elegance of a modern prime minister. But he strikes me as a modern prime minister in the sense of his desire to direct uh, key areas of policy, particularly, uh, although Halifax is the foreign secretary, in in essence, the strategic direction of British foreign policy is led by Neville Chamberlain. And that leads through, you know, summit diplomacy. the first prime minister to fly to a, a summit meeting and, and that takes us through you know the war years of, of summit diplomacy and Macmillan um in in, in the 50s and 60s as, as well is that the step change not just prime ministers like neville chamberlain who, who want to run foreign policy as well but you know uh technology making flights and, and summit diplomacy uh, much easier to achieve is that the real step change in the role of prime minister
1: Well, again, that's interesting. On Neville Chamberlain, we have had a a programme which I would urge people to listen to going back on appeasement, so maybe people can listen to that. I mean, several things to say about Neville Chamberlain. He had a fairly unprecedented grasp of social policy. Uh, I think that was quite important. His background was not foreign policy, nor defence. Uh, so he comes to that role with far less experience than Churchill does in 1940. Churchill had been, you know, First Lord of the Admiralty, he'd been Secretary of State for war, you know, and the colonies and all the rest of it. Um, I think, I wouldn't say that Neville Chamberlain wants to grasp control of foreign policy in 37. I th- I would say it, in a sense, is forced on him, um, and... Um I think that that is an important point. Um, and I think people could understand that. Um, the um, what you said thereafter, though, about the um, requirements of the, as it were peace or preparing for war or waging war, uh, forcing uh, pr- prime ministers to in a sense, be their own foreign secretary. To a considerable extent, yes, that is true, Um, that obviously there is also not just the technology, um, but there is also the extent to which um, it's possible through... um, Foreign policy to be seen to achieve things which are much harder, or can be much harder and more attract, intractable in domestic affairs. But I think we have to be careful about this. After all, Disraeli and Salisbury were scarce, and Palmerston were scarcely figures who didn't wish to be involved in foreign policy. Uh, Aberdeen had been, um, you know, a very active uh, in foreign policy. So I think we have to be careful about this. I mean, we could stand it on its head, and say that there was a period up to Salisbury, and Salisbury was Foreign Secretary as well as uh, Prime Minister, um, in which very much foreign policy was the forefront. We could then say that with the new liberalism of Campbell-Bannerman and Lloyd George, there is a much greater uh, engagement with domestic affairs, and if we want to, we can look back in that to Gladstone being fascinated with Ireland. We can look at Rosebury, who was, you know, the next um, uh, Liberal Prime Minister who'd been head of the London County Council. You know, these were activist figures, although Rosebury was also interested in foreign policy. Um, but... and And therefore, what we could say happened if we want to say, to argue this, is that you get a return from the 1940s to a late 19th century pattern, or maybe a entirely 19th century pattern. And again, we've got to handle these with care because, you know, Peel isn't Salisbury, for example. Uh, Melbourne um, is very different in his inclinations to Aberdeen. So I think we have to handle this with care. Now, if we though roll through Uh, the late 20th century. One of the points is that the Prime Minister is, this links up to what i was talking about earlier, is in effect being seen as head of state for the purposes of foreign policy. So you can see that very clearly with the summit conferences that begin, with the unfortunate one, to put it mildly, at Munich in 1938 um, you know George VI was perfectly fit enough to go to Munich uh, but you know um, the so you begin but obviously nobody suggested he should go it was the prime minister that goes so then during World War II it is Churchill that goes to places like Casablanca um uh, you know Tehran Yalta obviously to Washington during um, thereafter it's exactly and so on so that in a way the expectation of other powers is that they will see the man at the top, or in Mrs Thatcher's and Theresa May's case, uh, the woman at the top, and not be fobbed off with some also-ran. And, you know, it has to be said that some of the foreign secretaries we've had in the last 60 years, to be polite, are also-rans in terms of either experience, understanding or intellectual acuity
0: well in the um period since the second world war british foreign policy has been dominated by two relationships one the relationship with the united states particularly through the period of the cold war though transforming in different ways under tony blair uh since then but but also obviously the the long and now concluded uh relationship with what became the european union how did these two and maybe we should deal with them separately but how did these two relationships change the role of prime minister
1: well that's very good can i just in case i forget to say um because we need to tell people here we're not scripted so i don't know these questions coming um as far as concluded relationship no what one should say is we're no longer a member it is quite clear if you look at recent months that the european union has been only too happy uh particularly the commission to cause us a lot of problems um and also we you know uh, it's we have our own views and relationships through membership of other bodies particularly nato so so i'd leave i wouldn't say it's concluded i'd say it's different now okay um well first of all that takes on board exactly what we've just been talking about the prime minister as head of state um and indeed the prime minister negotiating as if head of state um so um the, uh, I mean, classic example was the negotiations to try and re- revise uh, British membership of the the terms of British membership of the European Union before the referendum. I mean, th- those were um, essentially, David Cameron was doing those, I and mean, obviously he wasn't very good at them, but he was doing them, and he was acting as if he was head of state. You know, uh, I can get this deal done. <laughs> I mean, he got that rather wrong on the referendum. But I mean, but you know, um, so that, that that element does come come in. Um, Prime Minister, therefore, enormously busy. No two ways about that. Um, Harold Macmillan, uh, a poser in many respects. Uh, liked to pose that he wasn't always concerned and worried and anxious. But you know, he liked to pose that he had plenty of time to read Trollope um um i think it's fair to say that the enormous amount of business which crosses the desk uh and every other means of getting to a prime minister at the moment is one that would have surprised our 19th century predecessors i think that uh so i think that um part of Being a member of the European Union, part of the relationship with the United States and other major countries, is that it requires a degree of attention by the Prime Minister that's very, you know, very significant. Now, I suppose you could, if you wanted to, try and get round that by having a um, a senior second minister, deputy prime minister, who in effect was the foreign minister. Um, I mean, obviously the number two at the moment is Dominic Raab, but he's just not up to it. I think everybody knows that. Um, and, you know, a prime minister might be disinclined to bring forward such an individual, or more to the point, if you're the president of the United States, you don't want to talk to the number two. So what's the point of almost having a number two? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the... Um, so um i think that there are that there is that element to it um but no i think it's the 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 pressure of the job is great of course that's not unique to the british prime minister that's true of a lot of um a lot of uh, individuals then on top of that the party system is very febrile uh, the discipline of the party system is is not good the British have brought themselves completely unnecessary problems for the Prime Minister by creating devolved assemblies and devolved governments. So I'm sure that the Prime Minister enjoys his exchanges with Nicola Sturgeon um, and with whatever the charlatan is who's in Cardiff, um, an ex-academic, which is always a very bad sign if you want anybody that's practical or got any ability. Um, the um, but the that again takes time and you know people then start to say well why hasn't he done or she done this that or the other and you I think that it is really hard I mean it's not a job that I think anybody really should envy and on top of that uh, by the nature of things um, you have commentators and, Historians who will pass judgments, even though they don't have the pressures on them that are even anywhere near um, so great in scale. And I thought one of the, I mean, the, the, I mean, as I said, I thought Charles Morse, and I wrote a piece about that in the critic, in fact, online about, I thought, Moore's was the best of the multi-volume biographies. It took us right back to the great quality multi-volume biographies of the 19th century. And my favourite, of course, is Archdeacon William Cox's three-volume Sir Robert Walpole, which came out in 1798. But the one thing, and of course there's no perfect way to do it, is that because Charles Moore was obviously taking a thematic approach, you know, here we have a chapter on the, you know, uh, Northern Ireland, say, What it didn't capture adequately, and there's no perfect way of doing this, is the simultaneity of politics. And the only way to do that is to try and recreate a week of the Prime Minister's life and all of the messages that they have, many of which are disparate, the... the uh, parliamentarians and others uh, trying to uh, you know seek their attention or support, etc cetera, etc, cetera, their own desire to try and influence policy and that simultaneity is not I think very well covered in many of the uh, biographies and other works. Um, so I think that that is something one needs to um, to think about. I mean I'm you know getting on in years. And I have to say, um, looking back on those prime ministers um, who uh, were around and influential, whose periods of office I can remember. Okay, uh, I have met uh, several prime ministers, but uh, but that shouldn't determine one because one obviously doesn't. You know, one's not sitting there when they're in um, going through their business, but. Um, Uh, Thinking about it, I I think that all of them have found an enormous amount of of the pressure of the work. I think some of them have been better than others and some of them I think and suspect history will be kinder to than than the commentators at the time and others I think people will be harsher to. I mean, I think the Prime Minister who people will be kinder to uh, is Theresa May, because, I mean, obviously, she let the general election campaign go on too long. There's no two ways about that. And that really um, sort of uh, harmed her. But she was able to negotiate a deal with Brussels. Um, and, you know, she was a figure of enormous integrity at a time when the country very much needed somebody of that uh uh, of that calibre and character so i suspect um she will be treated uh better um i have to say i think some of the others you know with the 30 years rule will roll out some of the documentation um and indeed i also suspect that with time we will see some of the more stupid things that they said to foreign powers i think for example um the cameron sarkozy discussions about overthrowing gaddafi were to put it mildly um facile inexperienced and stupid and many people have died as a result of their gross incompetence um i suspect that um more stuff will come out about the interesting links between Uh, Blair and um, some members of the business community whether influential in Formula One racing or not Um, so I think that we may well end up with feeling slightly tainted that we had some of our Prime Ministers Um, but I do think that uh, there are others we've been very fortunate with i i think we were very very fortunate to have mrs thatcher as prime minister i mean obviously some people didn't approve of aspects of her politics but somebody of great integrity enormous industry uh, and a strong sense of the national interest i think all of those were very important and somebody who was able to stand the strain of war of terrorist attacks upon them of sniping by large numbers of people in her own government and cabinet i think she was somebody of enormous integrity and a very very impressive figure um i actually think that um uh, callahan will probably james callahan will probably uh, emerge in retrospect as somebody who was had a greater level of integrity and honesty and perception than harold wilson i mean you might say that's not much of a comparison that wilson was quite clearly a very dubious piece of work and was surrounded by very dubious pieces of work Um, but nevertheless i think callaghan was impressive and i think if you look at the mess that the labor party got into in the 1980s and the fact that we were in a desperately unstable position in the mid-70s, I think it's very important that Callaghan didn't, um, you know, wasn't somebody who was on the left of the party. And I mean, linked to that, that, you can look at the possible Prime Ministers. I mean, whatever you might think about some of the Prime Ministers, um, you know, aren't we lucky that we had John Major, not Neil Kinnock? Aren't we lucky that we had Theresa May, not Jeremy Corbyn, you know? Um, aren't we lucky and we have Boris Johnson, not Jeremy Corbyn? You know, people need to consider what the choices were, and I think that's very important. And it's not just the commentators and historians need to think about it; the electors did think about it. Um, and I, I, I um, so I'm. I think there are a lot of aspects of this question we could discuss. I think at the present moment we've probably taken it, unless you've got some more questions which I'll happily answer, we've probably taken it as far as we can do at the present moment. But if people write in to you, not me, and you want to we we and you know think of some questions which we could then, you know, reprise in maybe five or six weeks' time, we could have a, another look at this question, because clearly there are some aspects of it we haven't even touched on. Uh, The personal religiosity, for example, of prime ministers, um, the question of their age when they took office. You know, there are all sorts of elements that we... um, Their military experience, all sorts of elements we could could discuss, the gender dimension. But I think at the present moment we've probably gone as far as we can. What I would like to do is to say to listeners that there are a lot of relevant works out there. Um, And, you know, if anybody wants to read one of mine, I would look at my Britain from 1945 to Brexit um, or my Modern British History, uh, 1851 to the present. But I think if you were looking specifically at prime ministers, there are there is a massive information in the works that Anthony Seldon has produced. Um, I think some there has been some really good work, as I've said, on on Margaret Thatcher. Um, I think that the um, you know if you're looking at Baldwin, who you mention, there's some interesting stuff by Philip Williamson on Baldwin, Baldwin's uh political rhetoric his sense of country i think that's that's worth uh, looking at. i'm not satisfied with the works on lloyd george i don't think they capture the rackety nature the essential dishonesty of the man Um, remember the man who, in 1940 wanted to be prime minister and to negotiate with Hitler and thought that Petain had done the right thing for France I mean you know that's the sort of thing one ought to and I'm afraid to say the biographers tend to ignore that or to underwrite it so uh, you know there are many ways you need to look at somebody and all of us it's partly how we do when things are good that shows our one hopes qualities but actually it's much more so that things are bad and it's on that last note that I think that you can find much to praise in Churchill for the war in Thatcher for the enormous concatenation of problems facing Uh, Britain in the mid-1980s, May, because of the real difficulties of the political and parliamentary situation she was in. All of them, I think, were very, very impressive figures facing enormous difficulties. And keeping going and keeping the show on the road is tremendously important. Callaghan, keeping the show on the road, despite the most vicious trade unionism and the most stupid um, uh, Attempts in the winter of discontent to bring the country uh, to a, to a halt. Baldwin uh, taking sensible measures during the general strike, uh, including not panicking. You know there are a whole host of people that one can who have done good for their country, and that is impressive.
0: Well, on that um, positive note, we must leave it for now, Professor Jeremy Black biographer of that first Prime Minister 300 years ago, Robert Walpole. Uh, we will return to different aspects of Premiership in in future, but for now, thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank you. And next week, we're talking about Jane Austen, correct?
0: Yeah, something rather different.
1: Something rather different.
0: If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.